it feels like we're in the middle of a, a new kind of industrial revolution and it's, it's a good thing to be part of. You might not get your name in the history books for it, but it's interesting nonetheless. Hi, I'm Dean Somerville, and this is Energy in Conversation, the podcast that takes a look into our energy future through the eyes of people leading the way. This season, we're featuring young energy professionals on the podcast as part of our Generation 2050 initiative. They'll be the industry's leaders in 2050 when the world will look very different from today. This week, we join Senior VP of Engineering at BP, Alita Rios, as she chats with two talented young professionals about CCUS technology. That's carbon capture usage, or utilization, and storage. CCUS is not very widely used yet, but it's expected to be a vital tool in meeting our climate targets by preventing CO2 from power generation or heavy industry from entering the atmosphere and contributing to climate change. With so much focus on ramping up renewable energy, it's easy to forget that around 80% of the world's energy needs are still met with oil, gas, or coal. Also, lots of industries require high temperature heat, which is not always easily replaced with renewables. Our ambitious climate goals require not just rapid renewable ramp up, but lowering the emissions of existing processes as well. And that's where CCUS can come in. Our guests discuss how CCUS works, the policy interventions and financial investments required for development, and the outlook for the next decade and beyond. They also talk about the growth of the sector, the opportunity for young people and others new to the industry, and the skills and knowledge needed to get involved. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to our conversation on carbon capture and utilization. My name is Alita Rios, and I'm the Vice President of Engineering at BP. Today, we really want to talk about what needs to be done to make deployment of carbon capture and storage a reality for the next decade and beyond. We know that it's needed and it's critical for the Paris Agreement. The question today is how we make it a reality, and also how do we attract young professionals to this challenge and to deliver this this future? So uh, first, I'd like to start with just introductions. Jenny, then uh, Charlie, tell us a little bit about you. Hi, my name's Jenny Reeve. I'm a project engineer working at Drax Power Station in North Yorkshire. So I'm working on the BEX project, which stands for Bioenergy with Carbon Capture and Storage. So what we're looking to do there is to fit carbon capture and storage onto a biomass-fired power station. That's exciting. And Charlie? My name's Charlie Garner. I'm a policy officer at the Carbon Capture and Storage Association. We've been around since 2006. We work on in the interest of our members to promote the development and deployment of CCUS, primarily in the UK. And my kind of responsibilities are, are very much focused around policy and engagement with government and also coordinate a, a technical working group which focuses on project level matters that might be of interest to those first CCS projects. We should start first by explaining how carbon capture insurance really works. And it sounds like, Jenny, you've been working at it and know it well. So maybe tell us how does it work? So carbon capture and storage is, is a technology that we can use to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from large scale emitters such as heavy industries or power plants. Uh, it helps to break it down into the two parts. So the carbon capture part comes first. It's essentially a gas separation process where you can remove the CO2 from the rest of the constituents in a gas stream. The technology we use at the minute is very similar to processes that are already used in, in natural gas processing all over the world. Uh, but there are kind of next generation technologies that are also in development that might help us to do that a bit more efficiently in future. And then the second part is, of course, storage, because once you've captured the CO2, you need to do something with it to make sure it doesn't re-enter the carbon cycle. 
So that involves compressing the CO2 to a really high pressure, maybe about 100 times or more uh, atmospheric pressure. And then you transport it to a storage site, such as a geological formation, typically a depleted oil and gas reservoir or something like that, where you can lock the CO2 within the rocks and stop it getting back into the atmosphere. Sounds like a lot of engineering. (laughs) We added the U. We talk about carbon capture and utilization. So give me some examples of why the U was added and why it's also so important. Utilization is the industrial process that makes an economically valuable product from CO2 at concentrations above atmospheric levels. You can actually use the CO2 and transform it using chemical reactions into materials, chemicals and fuels. Um, but I think it's quite important to say that, you know, utilization, it, it fits in the middle of the CCS bracket, but the volumes of CO2 that you can actually utilize are orders of magnitude less than what we will ultimately store and sequester via the storage option. We need to really think about the, the storage op- option uh, as a first, uh, which utilization options contribute to, to climate mitigation the most. Ginny, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you joined and what types of roles are available and what you've been up to? So I'm a chemical engineer by background. I started my graduate career in oil and gas, uh, which I really enjoyed. But I realized that in the longer term, I wanted a career that I could really be passionate about. And for me personally, that was low carbon energy. What appeals about CCS in particular to me is the variety of challenges that you're tackling all the time. It's not only the technical issues that an engineer might face, but it's all the other things that come with it, the policy and the commercial and how this technology can best serve the society that it's designed for. The roles tend to be very varied, uh, very interesting, especially at the moment where we're in kind of concept design stages and feasibility assessments. So there's an awful lot of interesting things going on. So Charlie, from you, what what got you into into carbon capture sector and interested in this profession? I studied environmental science uh, and carbon management at university, and my undergraduate thesis was actually on CCS. And to be honest, when I completed that, I didn't think I wanted to see CCS ever again. Um, but I find myself sitting here in a in a really exciting position with the Carbon Capture and Storage Association. Seemed like a really exciting job to be able to kind of interact with the CCS agenda and energy space more generally. But let's go back to talk a little bit about why we need it. Some may argue that we just ought to stop burning fossil fuels and instead do just green renewables. So why? I mean, why don't we just stop burning fossil fuels? It's it's a really key question for us at CCSA. And I think, you know, in the past, CCS has often been associated with abating CO2 from the power sector. But today, the the CCUS agenda is focused around meeting the net zero needs for multiple industries and sectors. To take a few examples, heavy industry, uh, you know, an enormously important part of our economy. It's very difficult to abate those emissions. So CCS is one of the options there. Then you've got a collection of other sectors that CCS can be applied to. And heat, for example, is, is a big topic at the moment in government and how we're dealing with low carbon heat going forward. CCS is, gives an opportunity to produce those early volumes of, of low carbon hydrogen, which can be applied to, to the heat sector. So there's a really good opportunity there. But also you've got bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So the use of, of biomass, burning biomass and, and capturing the emissions which can deliver net negative global carbon emissions. 
by supporting the sort of hard, harder to abate sectors like aviation. So, you know, there's, it's a really kind of broad view approach on CCS now. Charlie just mentioned something called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECS. In case you're not familiar, here's a general idea. Biomass is plant material, like wood or some kinds of agricultural waste. It's used as a fuel for power generation or other processes that need heat. Plants take in and store carbon as they grow and release it when they're burned. So if you can use CCS to capture and store that carbon when they're burned, you've essentially removed some carbon from the atmosphere. In other words, if you do it right, BECs can result in negative emissions. But there's a caveat. It really matters how this is done. The whole process from beginning to end determines how much emissions you're actually saving, plus how sustainable the process is. Besides the land you need for growing, the fertilizing, harvesting, drying, transporting, and sorting of biomass all requires energy, which can start to offset some of those emission savings we're aiming for. Jenny will talk a bit about Bex later when describing her role at Drax. The CCS debate is a lot more nuanced now than perhaps it was a decade or two ago. Our understanding of the energy system and the pathways to net zero have come on a long, long way. And so has renewable energy. So renewable energy will play an increasingly important role and fossil fuel use will go down, I'm sure. But as Charlie says, there's these really important sectors where those emissions reductions are just really hard to achieve in, in any other way. Hydrogen being an interesting one because hydrogen is a very exciting low carbon technology at point of use. But ultimately, to get those really large production scales, that hydrogen has to come from somewhere. And more often than not, it's coming from a fossil fuel source such as natural gas. You can produce a certain quantity with electricity, and that can feed into an, a flexible electricity system. But again, you're limited on efficiencies and scales and really what you can achieve. So CCUS will play a vital role for those. Uh, it's excellent points you bring up about the hard-to-abate heavy industry. So we've had a great discussion about the importance, but why are we not investing more in these projects uh, and it's not more widespread? Where is it currently used? Where are we seeing the potential areas of growth? And what do we need to see over the next you know, decade to make this a reality, Charlie? Maybe I'll start with you first because you are in the policy world and investment. I think it's it's quite important to, to note that in parts it's actually a, a well-established technology. It's been used in gas processing industries for many years. CO2 transport and storage has been around for quite some time. And we do have long-term projects operating like Sleipner CO2 storage in the North Sea. I believe as of 2018, 1 million tonnes of CO2 have been transported and injected into uh, the offshore formations in the North Sea since uh, 96, which is an incredible achievement. So it isn't a technical problem. I think there are commercial challenges that, that we've come across in, in recent years. But I think particularly in the past 18 months in the UK, we've seen policy really develop and we have a really ambitious CCS policy framework now with, with kind of clear commitments from government. In the first instance, I'd point toward the, the business models consultation Ultimately, it kind of sets out the, the framework for, for investment across the CCS chain. You will have seen the Energy White Paper announced a whole raft of, uh, of energy solutions that the government are striving to move forward on, one of which is a £1 billion CCS infrastructure fund, which um, you know we hope to see that be allocated over the next few years. So you know, in that sense, we are, we are actually in a really good place. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good explanation of it, Charlie. The carbon capture process and the transportation and storage infrastructure that goes along with it is very expensive to do and it uses an awful lot of energy. And CO2 itself has very little inherent value. So until now, there's been there's been little point in doing it, really. But I think this is where it's important to separate the CCU from the CCS. So with the utilisation element, you can take some value from that CO2 and, and shift your business model quite considerably. So some of the most successful CCS projects we've seen have been in North America, um, and they've been enhanced oil recovery projects where the CO2 is injected into depleted oil and gas reservoirs to increase production. Those have been really useful for de- demonstrating the technology at scale. But what we also need is a kind of permanent sequestration element to really start to get the emissions reductions that we need. Um, so that's where CCS is slightly more challenging, is that you can't sell that CO2 in quite the same way. So that's where we need the policy interventions that Charlie mentioned um, to kind of really support those projects. Some of the opportunities and revenue streams from CCS are quite nuanced. You have, in the first instance, real exciting export opportunities for the UK's low carbon industry. What we saw with offshore wind progressed incredibly well. One of the opportunities that was missed is that we didn't perhaps include enough UK content in our supply chains. We've got a real opportunity to kind of make sure that the UK is is well positioned from a, a supply chain perspective. You've also got the transition of you know highly skilled jobs from the oil and gas sector. Many of the, the skills that are applied there can be you know, retrained across to, to things like pipeline engineering for the transport of CO2 and processing. And then there's other kind of slightly unique examples. We have two kind of core storage opportunities, one off in the North Sea and, and the other up in the East Irish Sea. Uh, and, you know, we have a substantial amount of, of, of storage there for CO2 sequestration, far more than the UK needs. There's actually a bit of an opportunity there to, to export some of that storage um, to, to other countries who perhaps don't don't have those facilities, which for the UK government and economy is, you know, it's it's a real winner. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to build on that point, Charlie, uh, what the UK government is doing around, you know, industrial centers and really linking all the industry around the carbon capture and utilization. Zero T-side project, which BP is a part of, but part of as well as NEI and Equinor and Shell and Total is really a collaboration. We all need that collaboration to create those revenue streams and those projects. We're seeing those clusters really coming together across the world, and that's really exciting for investment. Um, you talked a little bit already about how can government support the rollout of CIS-US. I just wanted to see if there was any more you could add about government, because I do think investment and incentives are needed to to really build on all of our net zero targets. Uh, absolutely. I think long-term policy certainty around CCS is, is really key. Um, I think what we need to do is, is look past the conventional four-year cycle that we see in government. And actually, when when we talk to government officials, what we see is that we do actually have fairly broad cross-party support on CCS. Um, So there's no reason not to have a joined-up approach and policy just to help these projects progress seamlessly without interruption. These projects are are working extremely hard to get get things moving, as I'm sure, Jenny, you're uh, experiencing now. So that, that will be really key. To touch on what the what the government has done, they've put forward the commercial frameworks for the CCS business models, which kind of provide some of the incentive mechanisms for the, the transport and storage network and capture as well. 
we're starting to understand the revenue mechanism for for how perhaps the private sector can invest in in industrial C2S. But I think there are a, a, a lot of conversations that need to be had to refine those models going forward. And, and it's something that CCSA are, are doing at the moment with our members and, and industry trying to kind of work with government to, to make sure that those models are, are suitably placed to kind of deliver on the CCS agenda. We have been talking a lot about the UK, kind of interested in finding out other parts of the world really progressing CCUS. What are some of the, the other projects you're seeing? What are the, the, some of the other parts of the world that are really taking off with CCUS? Um, as I, I mentioned earlier, North America has been a leader to date, largely because of the environment being right for enhanced re- oil recovery over there. If you're storing the CO2, a big part of what you need, is, as Charlie mentioned, is the storage capabilities. So part of it is geographically limited. But we're starting to see some really interesting projects coming through. For example, in Norway, there's the Northern Lights project where they're looking um, to transport their CO2, not by pipeline, but by ship. And that's because they're similarly placed to the North Sea as the UK is. So they've got easy access to sort of oil and gas fields there. Um, So there's some really exciting stuff going on there at the minute. I think some of the slightly more unique examples, um, Abu Dhabi, international projects. They have the world's first industrial carbon capture project on steel manufacturing. I believe it captures around 800,000 tonnes of CO2 from an adjacent steel plant, uh, which is a considerable amount. Australia as well are kind of moving in the right direction. Going back to America, you know, they've got a really interesting tax incentive over there called the 45Q, which um, rewards for CO2 capture and storage, which is a it's something that is, is really quite unique and perhaps why they've they've been so successful. Yeah, excellent. Well, that certainly gives me confidence that we're definitely moving in the right direction and the momentum we need. I'm going to go back to exciting projects you worked on. I'd just like to hear, it sounds like both of you have really have a passion for this work. Maybe if you can just tell us about an exciting project you worked on. At the moment, I'm working at Drax on the BEX project, Bioenergy with CCS. BEX is quite widely recognised as being a really vital part of the puzzle in getting to a net zero energy system. The UK Committee on Climate Change estimates that we need about 51 million tonnes per year of negative emissions to, to meet our climate change commitments. Drax alone could contribute up to 16 million tonnes per year of that, so that's quite a significant proportion of what we need as the UK. That said, no one has yet managed to to crack that puzzle as to how they make CCS work at scale. So it's a really exciting project to be part of. It's kind of at the cutting edge of, of what we need in the future. Besides doing the really large scale stuff where we're talking about pipes which are three metres wide and enormous, enormous infrastructure, down to running a pilot plant. So I spend a good part of my time in overalls and a hard hat with a spanner trying to make a pilot plant work. The scale of that is millions of times smaller than the process that we're designing. So I really get to see both sides of the spectrum. Um, So the moment where we turned that pilot plant on for the first time and captured our first CO2 was a really exciting one. And the aim of that is to test our flue gases with the solvents that we would use in carbon capture, see how they interact so we get a better idea of the kind of emissions profile and the degradation profile of different solvents. And that can feed then into a larger scale design. So it's it's really from the, the tiny to the really big, and it's, it's a very interesting place to work. Charlie, how about you as well? It takes all, all disciplines to make this work, yeah. but on your side, what are some of the exciting projects you've interacted with? Yeah, I mean, chemical engineer, I am not. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, But there's definitely been a few really standout projects that I've, I've kind of worked on in the past sort of 10 months 
been working quite closely with the Environment Agency. So the Environment Agency are in charge of, of permitting these big capture facilities. And because in the UK, those facilities are, you know, they're, they're kind of new. We haven't built any in the UK before. The Environment Agency need a guideline on how these technologies work and the applications and the broad ranges for, for what they'll look like in the future. We've been going through a consulting process with the environment agency and an industry to familiarise the regulator with uh, those different facilities. CCSA's work is, is very much trying to build the momentum and confidence in CCS going forward. So we last year held our conference. We obviously had to move everything to a, to, to a virtual format. That was a really interesting engagement opportunity, developing the conference with CCSA members and, and staff and industry and kind of showcasing that on behalf of industry to, to the public, to, to government uh, and, and the rest of the world. It had a you know, really international focused audience um, all the recordings for the, the conference are on our website. Um, so do head over there and, and check it out. Definitely holding a conference this year. So I'd highly encourage you to, to, to head on over. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think you both raised something that's pretty important is um, learning more about this industry and how it works and um, the realities we need young professionals like yourselves to join and to help resolve it. How do we expect to change the future and have young professionals join join both of you to make CCUS uh, part of the equation and part of the reality? It's interesting that you say that because for a number of years I was interested in CCS and I could see a lot of reports out there saying how many thousands of jobs it would create. But at the minute, it doesn't feel like we're quite there yet. So if you go and you look for jobs in CCS, it's not all that obvious where the jobs are. I think that will change very quickly. We already have so many things in development that will need so many different skill sets not only technical ones, but all sorts, like the work that Charlie does is so vital. Really, it's just a case of any young person who's interested in this field, getting an idea of what's out there, which companies and which organisations are working in that field and, and try to understand where the opportunities might be for them. From a different perspective, perhaps the projects that, that Jenny is working on, you know, they are due to be kicking off very, very soon. Um, and so something that we need to develop are the supply chains that support those projects. I think, as Jenny said, perhaps the most obvious jobs aren't there. You know, young energy professionals should really be looking at all sorts of alternative opportunities in kind of ancillary services. An example, perhaps, would be we had a company join us as a member who were developing a, a new and interesting technology that monitors CO2 in the subsurface under the sea or in the storage formations. That's just one example, but it kind of spans all the way out to, to things like financial sector, legal services, um, all of which can kind of be exported as an opportunity for UK expertise to be showcased elsewhere. How about transferable skills? So as you said, there aren't maybe many jobs, but the skills in other jobs really are very transferable. I have to say, being um, an engineer for the last 30 years, what we do in engineering is completely transferable to solving the climate crisis, regardless of if, if you're in fossil fuels or if you're in renewables. I think the same goes for, um, you know, finance professionals, uh, supply chain professionals. That's just a plug for me that it's what you're doing today is completely transferable to resolving the energy transition problem we have right now. So Jenny, maybe back to you specifically because you're a, an engineer, you're a woman, 
I know we don't have a lot of women in these sort of jobs. Can you say more about um, how do we attract more women and keep retain them in this sector in these types of roles? I think this is still a really important question. You you still look at senior management in many companies or high profile speakers at events and you see a row of male faces and you wonder where the place is for, for women in, further up in organisations anyway. Diversity is important in any sector, but one reason it's important in the energy industry is the decisions we make in the next decade or so will literally shape the world that we come to live in, whether we meet our climate change commitments, the cars we drive, the way we heat our homes, all sorts of decisions like that. So I think it's important that women are represented in those decisions when they're made. As to how you solve that issue, that's a really difficult one to get right. I think it will get better naturally. It's only more recently that we've had more STEM graduates starting to come through. So I think they will start to trickle through the organisations they work in. And then it's about supporting women in the best way possible through the different barriers that they might face along the pipeline. Uh, I've seen both sides of the coin. I've, I've had a peer tell me in my first week starting at a job that he would never hire a young woman in her 30s because she was likely to go and get pregnant. And that's a horrible thing to hear. But I've also had various people say to me, you'll go far in this career because you're a woman. And that's not great either, although it's well meant. If you're undermined before you've even got to a position of responsibility, then that's not doing you any favours either. So I think it's about really having the right policies in the right places that break down barriers without necessarily kind of putting women in a difficult position. Yeah, well said, Jenny. And I, I think it takes everything you've said and also role models like yourself. Certainly for me as well, it's been a, a journey um, encountered many of what you've just described. Um, one of the things that attracts, I think, talent is purpose. And there isn't a greater purpose than what we've just talked about to, you know, make the world um, a better place for everyone. And so I hope that also attracts much more women to this problem we're trying to solve. So I'm really excited about that. And I think women can make a big difference because we bring that diversity of thought, that innovation and all diversity is good. So I really appreciate your perspective in that. And please keep being that role model that you already are to attract more women. I have one final question, which is the killer question, is one that honestly um, I I hope to answer real soon because I think it's uh, right at that um, point in my career. Think about if you were 30 years out in your career, you're looking back, what would you like to have seen happen in the energy system? And what contribution to that would you like to be remembered for? What do you want your legacy to be? Yeah, that is the killer question, I think. Um, so in 30 years time, that will be 2051. So I really hope in the UK, we will have met the net zero 2050 commitment that, that we've made. And I hope we've done that in a way that's fair and equitable, that brings better quality of life for people, brings jobs and opportunities, and hopefully bring the rest of the world along on that journey with us. And I hope we'll be looking to the next thing, uh, aiming to be even better. As for my legacy within that, it's hard to say. I just hope that I've played an active part in that and I can look back with pride on, on the contribution that I've made to that transition. Charlie? Can I steal that answer, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd completely echo that. I think it's, it's something which um, I've said in previous job interviews is that, you know, as a as a challenge, Net Zero is it's one of the most exciting things to be involved in um, simply because... You know, the challenge is, is so big, it's so broad, but it's 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 world changing. And I think as a young energy professional, just to be a part of that is is really exciting. And I'd like to see everything that, that, that Jenny has mentioned come to fruition 
and perhaps in terms of my legacy, just to be associated and be a part of the team of people that drove that change, I think is really, really, really brilliant. And I'd love that. Absolutely. It, it feels like we're in the middle of a, a new kind of industrial revolution and it's, it's a good thing to be part of. You might not get your name in the history books for it, but it's interesting nonetheless. I totally agree with both of you. You really have inspired me. I like the way you put it because in 30 years time is going to be 2051. Many of us know a lot of companies are setting out ambitions, but BP's is setting out to be net zero company by 2050 or sooner and also to help the world get there. And so I just think that's so important that we achieve that uh, and that we also help each other and help help the world get there. So you both have inspired me. Obviously, I'll be retired and be watching, but it will be just as important to me. And I suspect I'll be continuing to work in the space. So thank you so much. This is a great conversation and I really enjoyed it. I think um, we'll sign off there. Thanks again to today's guests, Charlie Garner, Dr. Jenny Reeve and Alita Rios. A quick note on one statistic quoted by Charlie earlier. The Sleipner field in the North Sea has been used to store 1 million tons of CO2, not in total, but each year since 1996. If you want to learn more about our guests or about the CCUS technology and projects mentioned, visit our website, energy-inst.org slash podcast. You can also find out more about our Generation 2050 initiative. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch by tweeting to at Energy Institute. And tune in next time when we'll get real nerdy about the future of the electricity grid. Energy in Conversation is brought to you by the Energy Institute. This episode was produced by Martin Begley and Daniel DeVeza. Music is by Jack Keeney. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. Thanks for listening.